Hello, and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. This show is presented to you by Gasowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our new website at gasowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Craig Frankel and Adam Gaslowitz, and we're talking about So You Think Your Estate Plan Is Done, Fixable Problems, Simple Cures. And now it's time to introduce our guests. We're pleased to have with us today Carly Howard, Senior Wealth Strategist with Atlantic Trust Private Wealth Management, and Attorney Rebecca Cummings of Rebecca Cummings Law Firm. Uh, and before we start, let me get uh, each of you to just sort of tell the audience a little bit about yourselves. So Carly, why don't, why don't you start? Sure. Good morning. I'm Carly Howard. I'm a wealth strategist with Atlantic Trust Private Wealth Management. Uh, we're an investment firm here uh, in Atlanta and, and also nationally. Uh, we manage assets for, for, for clients all over the United States. I think what sets us apart uh, from other wealth management firms is that we provide comprehensive wealth strategies for our clients, and, and that's what I do. I'm uh, an attorney by uh, trade. I practiced fiduciary litigation in Florida for a while before moving to Charlotte, North Carolina, where I had a more transactional practice, taught law school uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, where I'm from, and then uh, got into banking and investment management. And uh, the the crux of what we do is uh, provide coordination of a client's entire financial picture so that all of their various advisors are all uh, talking to each other and, and that these estate plans work out like they're supposed to. So, right. so you're like a recovering alcoholic. You're a recovering lawyer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Right. And Rebecca? <laughs> I'm Rebecca Cummings and I'm a practicing lawyer. I'm a wills, trusts and estates lawyer and have been practicing in Georgia for 17 years. And the bulk of my practice is putting together estate plans for Georgia families and then helping families when somebody's died um, through the administration process. And I also serve as a fiduciary for families in Georgia as executor and trustee. And I also did a stint teaching law school. So we have that in common. All right. uh, Let's start with the first uh, question that is sort of at the end of the process, but one of the ones that we often see in our practice. And that's, you know, someone has died. There's a a probate that's been instituted. But but during the probate process, uh, uh, things happen. Uh, There are uh, gaps in uh, financing and things like that. And so eventually the, the probate will get delayed because of lack of access to the estate or, or various other things. Do you, have you dealt with situations where someone has died and nobody has access to funds? All the time. That's extremely common. Um, at the very beginning of the probate process, you're waiting on the death certificate. And at least in the large counties in Georgia, they're taking, in my experience, longer and longer to get to the family. So assuming there aren't any joint accounts, the initial problem that we face in many estates is that there's no access to the deceased person's accounts. It's, it's something most people don't realize is that when, when you die, the, the estate is tied up. Until, until it's been probated, the estate is tied up. So none of the family members have access to bank accounts, brokerage accounts, any funds that they thought they would have had immediate access to. Yeah, you have joint owners have immediate access. So if my husband and I have a joint bank account, if I die, he could continue to use that bank account. Um, But uh, even assets that have beneficiary designations that you think, oh, you get this outside of probate, you do, but you have to wait for the death certificate. Um, And if the death certificate is delayed for six weeks or eight weeks, you've got six or eight weeks of bills and somebody needs to step up and pay those bills if there's no access to the deceased person's money. And and let's make a note here because I see this all the time. 
a power of attorney, which you may have for your elderly mom or dad, dies when your elderly mom or dad dies. Correct. And people try to use it and sometimes get a little bit in trouble. So we need to be aware of that as we transition from somebody who is alive to an estate. Yeah, this problem can be exacerbated as well if the person who's died did everything online. And you may not even know where their accounts are or what's going on. Digital asset management has become a really, really huge topic in our industry because of that. Have you met my father? He (laughs) he barely uses a phone. So so, so how do you plan ahead for that? If you're doing an estate plan and and, and you believe the family is is, uh, cooperative and and can communicate with each other, but you don't know for certain. Making sure that someone has your passwords, all of the passwords is really important. And um, if you're a married couple, uh, you might want someone, um, a, another family member, a trusted friend, or a professional fiduciary to have those as well in case something happens to you as a couple. Um, you know, years ago, we used to tell people never to write down their passwords because someone could come in your house and uh, steal it and, and get your passwords. But that really isn't much of a concern anymore. We're finding that when uh, cyber attacks happen, they're they're online. Someone breaks into your computer, not your house. So um, the industry is kind of moving toward write your passwords down and put them in a safe place. And and I think different advisors have different opinions on that. But I'm hearing that as a recommendation more often. Well, what, no, what, you what, can't. What, sorry, I was going to say, what about the more practical problem of uh, often in, in the situation where it's the second uh, uh, parent who dies, so there's no surviving spouse. Um, and the kids are the ones who are taking over management of the estate. You often don't have joint accounts in that situation, or, or, or if you do, you end up with other types of problems. So, so when the kids take over the estate, there's literally no access to anything until a probate has been started. A lot of times there are disputes. A lot of times there are caveats to wills filed or there are other impediments to actually gaining access to the estate. How do you deal with that in the planning process so that when you die, there's no sort of lack of funds? Go ahead. (laughs) This is a a very common problem, especially, Adam, as you point out, when you're dealing with the second spouse. And I just had clients in yesterday who she is um, a retired person and of means and her adult children are very responsible, but one is a minister and one is a social worker, and neither of them have enough cash to continue paying her bills after she died. And we had a long discussion with her financial advisor and the two of us about what to do about it and ended up settling on creating a joint account with her children uh, with a relatively small balance in it for the purposes of carrying her bills in the months after she died. We talked about the risks of a joint account and what could what could go wrong, but ultimately we decided that it would make the process of beginning administration so much more smooth if her kids had access to $20,000 after her death that she's going to set up a separate account and name them as joint owners for that purpose and explain to them that that's what it's for. And you can use restrictions on the account and access that 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 gives some some guidance. I did want to mention something about digital assets that we're, we are worrying about in passwords. There is now a lot of ways to save all of your passwords separately that you can go look at, which is really a wonderful thing. But you're going to find that there's a lot of law changing around the country. And as a practical matter, once you have died, Technically, you are not supposed to use somebody else's password unless they have authorized you. So almost every institution has what's referred to as tools that you can say give access to or not. But I think you're going to see with Rebecca and others a lot more planning 
in the will saying that you can get access? Because I think that's a huge problem. Let me ask this question that I see a lot. Um, The family actually has need to immediate access to funds for themselves, not just for the funeral and the last illness, but they actually need the access to the funds and it takes a while. Yeah. And everyone's expectation is you're going to get it immediately. What do you do? One one thing you can do um, on the on the front end and to address Adam's question earlier um, is use a revocable trust, fund the trust appropriately, name a successor trustee. That is seamless. The the agent under power of attorney loses power upon the family member's death. But with a, a revocable trust, that trust will become irrevocable upon the person's death. But the successor trustee just steps in and explain and, what a trust is versus a will. Absolutely, um, a will is a document that goes through probate. Uh, it's a public document, and in many ways, it's it's somewhat antiquated. It, it <laughs> and and we see we see in uh, Georgia the probate process is fairly easier than other states. So a lot of attorneys will default to using just a will. And, and that that sometimes works fine. But in many states, and especially if you have property, real property in other states, uh, a trust might be the right solution for you. A revocable trust is an entity, in a sense, that you have complete control over during, um, during, your, during life. your lifetime, during your lifetime. And uh, you can title assets in the name of this trust. Um, so your checking account now becomes the, the revocable trust checking account. And, and you still, um, you still, use money from the trust, move assets in and out, name beneficiaries who will inherit these assets. Um, and, and you can even set it up so that during your incapacity, uh, during your lifetime, your spouse and children or, or other dependents uh, can, can receive assets from this trust. You name a trustee as a fiduciary to manage this trust. And that fiduciary has a uh, responsibility to make sure that the trust assets are managed for your benefit and the benefit of the beneficiaries. And that is a very serious job. Carly mentioned that you can move things in and out of the trust. One of the problems I think I see, and Rebecca, tell me how you solve this is, you tell the clients this, but in fact, they don't. (laughs) So the assets aren't put into the trust. Explain why that's relevant. Well, it's relevant for a bunch of different reasons. So let me start by saying that the way that you transfer assets into trust is by changing the title of the assets. So Carly mentioned a bank account you would change, the, if, if it's my revocable trust, the bank account that was previously in my name would be changed to be in the name of me as trustee of my revocable trust. With a piece of real estate, you do it by changing the deed, by deeding it from me. I would deed it from myself to myself as trustee. So there's a formal process of changing the title. That's how individual assets get into the trust. Depending on the objectives of setting up a trust, it's it can be either extremely important that assets are transferred in at life or not as important. So if we're talking about, as Craig points out, the issue of their specific accounts that family members need to get access to for their own support immediately after somebody's died, you could transfer just those assets into the trust. But if you're setting up the trust to avoid probate, or in another state or in Georgia for some reason, then all of the assets need to be transferred in. If you leave anything in the deceased person's name, you're still going to have a probate. Okay. But, but for example, uh, uh, Carly, you were mentioning real estate in other states before. And we know that you know, if you die in one state and you've got real estate somewhere else, you've got to go and do a second, what's called ancillary probate in that other state. So even people who are doing wills here in Georgia, if they have real estate elsewhere, can benefit from doing a living trust, some sort of a living trust, and putting at least the 
out-of-state real estate into that trust. Is that correct? That's well said. And this is this is kind of a like a, a, a running sad joke in our industry that people set up these great estate plans. They've got great attorneys. They paid all this money for these fancy documents. And then they don't title their assets in the name of the trust. Uh, it, it, it happens all the time. And it, it's heartbreaking for me because then we have to go back and try to fix some problems. It's easier to fix problems while the client's alive. Just so we're clear, assets that are in trust uh, pass seamlessly to the beneficiaries of the trust uh, without going through probate, without doing anything else. Uh, if you leave anything out of the trust, then you're simply going to go through probate with regard to those assets that are left out. Right. I would say this is why having a financial ad- advisor is very important. Um, some attorneys will help their clients retitle assets in the name of the trust, or they'll at least make suggestions as to what property should be in the name of the trust. But there aren't many attorneys who actually walk their clients through that process. So I, I would suggest finding an attorney who does walk you through that process or find some a, a financial advisor, a wealth strategist who will run the numbers behind this, make sure that the cash flow is right, make sure that there's enough liquidity in a trust, um, going back to our earlier topic. And also um, just, just kind of walk through the process, make sure all the paperwork's done correctly. And that goes for titling assets in the name of a trust, beneficiary designations of life insurance or um, uh, retirement accounts, things like that. It, it's really important to do the follow through. So, to, so, so on the subject of real estate, out-of-state real estate, are there any other problems that come up with out-of-state real estate? Because a lot of people own vacation homes or timeshares, which are their own separate nightmare. Oh my gosh, right. how much time do we have? <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Um, I, when, I, when I had just become a trust officer Years ago, I uh, I was dealing with a situation, and this was after the market had had crashed, and um, the the client's net worth was greatly greatly uh, reduced right before his death, and he had wanted the family beach house to stay in the family so his three children could use it, and it sounded like a great idea, but there wasn't enough liquidity there to sustain the property to pay the taxes, the insurance, the utilities, so. One of the three children had absolutely no interest in using the beach house anyway. Another of the three children uh, had sufficient assets to help pay the expenses, but wasn't going to do that for his siblings. And then the the other sibling wanted to use the beach house, but couldn't contribute. It was a really, really tough situation because as trustee, we had to make a decision whether to sell this property or not. And and the numbers mandated that we we had to sell the property. There was nothing else we could do to, to save it. Over the objection of some, but not all of the beneficiaries. Yeah, we got everybody on board. I mean, that's 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 at the end of the day, the communication and, and trying to get every, everybody on board is really, really important. And and we, you know, we showed them the numbers and it, it was just a heartbreaking situation. Anyone in that situation would have had to, to do that. But I feel like if the numbers had been run properly, that the the plan could have been saved because there were liquid assets that went elsewhere. They just didn't go into the trust to pay the expenses of this house. So that that was that was uh, I, I, lo- I lost a lot of sleep while that was going mm-hmm. on. That was not fun. <laughs> and and in other states, you know, all these laws are state based laws, and attorneys are licensed by state. So when I have clients who have houses in Florida or Hilton Head, we need to work with a lawyer in those other states 
for to make the transfer into the trust and also to highlight any other issues with a state tax in that state, loss of homestead exemption or any other exemptions or any transfer taxes. So there's necessarily another lawyer licensed in that state involved and involved in that transfer. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We're your hosts, Adam Gaslowitz and Craig Frankel from the fiduciary litigation firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We're talking today with Carly Howard, Senior Wealth Strategist with Atlantic Trust Private Wealth Management, and attorney Rebecca Cummings of the Rebecca Cummings Law Firm. Now, I wanted to make an, un- an unadulterated plug for planning attorneys. Because something we said was very interesting that you said, Carly, that lawyers can help the transfer of assets, but many don't. And I think they don't because the client doesn't ask them to and doesn't want to pay for it. And as a lawyer who deals with the disputes after the fact, it would make a lot of sense if you're going to use a trust to spend the extra dollar and make sure that the assets are transferred properly not only to trust, but for the designations. But let's assume you didn't do that, (laughs) okay? We've got this problem on the house. You've got other problems in transferring title like life insurance. Are there ways to try to fix that problem and are there deadlines for us to do so? So you've got, let's say, life insurance that designated the wrong beneficiary or you've got an IRA that, that, that designates the wrong beneficiary or you've got a joint title to a house that you meant to be kind of part of the big pot, but it went to a single child for whatever reasons or something like that. You're talking about about in the planning process? Afterwards. We're we're done with the planning process. They've now died, and there's an oops. It's not what they wanted. What are our kind of options as lawyers and and as fiduciaries that we can try to fix this with cooperation, I assume? We would look at talking, if, if, if we were serving as a fiduciary, we would uh, look at talking to the attorneys to come up with solutions uh, and, and also talking to the family and, and making sure that everybody was, uh, was on board with what was, was happening. You can, you can sometimes come, uh, come up with a family settlement agreement that can redirect some of these assets. But as far as life insurance and retirement accounts and whatnot, sometimes there are federal rules that would apply if it's a qualified account. Sometimes there are state rules that would apply. So uh, it's it's going to be different in every situation. And, and absent, absent cooperation, it's going to be difficult to solve many of those problems. Yeah. I mean, other right. than sitting people down and explaining to them that regardless of whether they agree with each other or even like each other, the cost and the pain associated with, with not cooperating to fix it somehow is going to be far worse than what they think. And it's hard to get, I mean, even the most... Uh, sort of cooperative people, when you have a bird in the hand, you were the joint owner, you were the named beneficiary. It's very difficult to get even the most reasonable person to give that up. You know, mama wanted it. That's why she did it that way. I'm sure she put my name on the title because she wanted me to have the mountain house. That's uh, so I think the the chances to uh, fix those things really go almost to zero um, when somebody dies it, with with uh, little expense, right? With a lot of expense, you can work out a family settlement agreement. But um, these things really need to be fixed during life at at checkups. Yeah, I think it's really important to do the checkups. People will say, oh, I did my will. That's done. Or I bought life insurance. That's done. Or I allocated my 401k account. It's done. It's really important to 
review your estate planning documents every few years or when there's an important life event like a marriage or divorce, a birth or death of a family member, um, or a, a significant change in financial circumstances. Or change in health. Or change in health. Absolutely. Uh, so it's really important to revisit that and to make sure that all of your advisors are coordinating. And from where I sit, I cannot stress this enough. Uh, many of our clients have a real estate attorney, an estate planning attorney, a, an accountant, um, a life insurance salesman, a portfolio manager or broker, a mortgage specialist, on and on. All of these people are doing their job in a vacuum unless someone coordinates that. And if the someone is you, that's great. But um, we're often very busy and we think about these things in isolated circumstances. But especially for high net worth clients, um, you you can't make any financial decision in a vacuum that, that's not going to affect all your other aspects of your financial life. Well, Rebecca, you, how many type people are actually coming to you for checkups? A, a fair number actually come back to me for checkups. And the most common thing that uh, has sort of fallen apart in the time since they had a, a perfectly done estate plan and the checkup is beneficiary designations. People get new jobs and they forget how they're supposed to designate beneficiaries to a trust for their children. And the updated beneficiary designations are not proper. So that's... A fair number of people call me and sort of want to go over, especially before big anniversary vacations. They think, ah, maybe we ought to call Rebecca and, and check on our will. It seems like the cooler the vacation, the more convinced people are that they're going to die. <laughs> I like that. That's that's. So, very I don't know. We don't, we, don't, we don't pack till the last minute. I'm not sure we could make the changes in our documents. <laughs> what would you advise your clients who are coming in for the checkup to make it both more efficient and more affordable but also easier for you? What do they need to bring to that checkup? Well, they need to bring their updated financial information so that we make sure that the way that their finances and their assets are titled and their debt is titled matches with their estate plan. But it helps if they pull out their documents and review who they've named to all the fiduciary positions to make sure that those people are still appropriate for the job. We, we help with this all the time. Um, part of what, what we do, um, it's included in our wealth management fees, uh, no extra charge for this, is just do an estate planning review and put a little diagram together that just reminds people what's in their estate plan. And then when they go talk to their attorney, they're prepared for that conversation. They remember what they did. They've thought about um, all the things that Rebecca just mentioned, and we put the numbers behind it. We actually run cash flow and we can integrate retirement planning and things like that. So there, there's there are people out there who can help you with that. Do, do you also talk to them about? Well, a lot of people have very illiquid assets. They have they have closely held businesses. They have real estate. They have other things that are perhaps owned in partnership with other people, or where they own less than a hundred percent interest in it. Do you talk to them at that time about uh, how those assets will will be distributed or play out after their death, and perhaps something to think about in terms of changing that? Absolutely. So I've done a lot of planning for executives and business owners, particularly family businesses, where we're trying to transfer the business or the wealth generated from the business from generation to generation. The name of the game in investing is diversification. You hear that all the time. And in, in fact, uh, the, the Uniform Trust Code requires us to use diversification when we're managing trust accounts. But when you have executive compensation or a closely held business, you can't just diversify that asset. You'd have to sell it or you have to wait till retirement to cash it in. So we have to get creative on the things that we can do to cash flow that and to create diversity in a family's estate, even though that's a very illiquid asset. 
And let me add to that, that for a lot of my clients, they may have very illiquid assets when they come in to do the planning or when they come in to do the checkup. But most people are convinced that their assets will be liquid and easy to manage by the time they die, right? They're planning to die at an old age after they've retired and sold their business. Um, but of course, that's not the way that it always works. So part of that reality check is if you died today, not only do we have potential liquidity issues, but we have control issues. Okay, you have you have two children, your spouse has three children, so we've got five children who are going to be inheriting your portion of this business. One of them works in the business. Let's talk from a practical standpoint about how the business is going to continue to run, if that's what it's going to do, and who's going to have control of this, how, what buckets are things going to go into. But that's a tough conversation to have because often a business owner, and between my husband and I, we own three businesses, you're so busy working in the business and growing the business that you're not thinking, what's the worst case scenario if I got hit by tractor trailer on the way home in terms of control? So it's liquidity and it's also control. And some of these assets are difficult to sell. I mean, if Many of if them are difficult to sell. Well, either, either because they're so illiquid or because the real estate market is down or because a business is encumbered by agreements among the shareholders that keep you from selling it, you may be stuck with illiquid assets in the estate for a while. Yeah. And, you know, I see more and more often, I guess, in the name of diversity, um, people have unique assets. Like I have a client who died last year who has an investment in affordable housing in another state and the interest cannot be sold by the terms of the operating agreement of the of the investment. We're having a very difficult time getting any of the documents that we need in order to value it for the estate tax return. So, so are, p are people who own these kinds of assets while they're still alive, are the things they should be doing to alleviate that problem or at least lessen it? Well, I think a good uh, wealth manager is talking to the client not only about the assets that they manage, but these other assets and sort of getting the information together so that at least you've got contact names, you've got tax returns, you've got financial statements that will make your executor's job easy after you're gone. That's one thing. But um, sometimes these investments just aren't worth it in terms of diversifying if they have all kinds of restrictions that are going to cause extreme expense to your estate. I mean, in the case that I was just talking about with the affordable housing, what they will spend in legal fees and um, accounting fees to try and get this thing valued is probably more than it's worth. Yeah, there's a soft side of this that, that involves people. We've been talking about the money behind uh, a, a closely held business, but the people involved will make or break this. If there's a business succession plan that involves family members, that's great, but it needs to be communicated at the right time, the right information at the right time to the right people. There's a family culture that evolves, especially when there's a family business. But you're talking about people who can communicate, and that's not true in most families. It's certainly not, not true in all families. There are, there are things that, that can be done, and if the family feels like it's just not accomplishable, that needs to be addressed ahead of time. Uh, we, ha we work with families who have passed along family business interests for multiple generations and and it does take work it's 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 like the estate planning checkups you've got to do a checkup on the family values the family goals how how is the business who is interested in running the business I, I think that's another thing we run into a, a problem that we run into is that uh, the older generation will make assumptions about what the younger generation wants to do, whether or, they want or, to be or involved could do. Or, or could do. <laughs> and vice versa. Right. The younger generation makes assumptions about what the older generation is doing yep. with their estate. So, so obviously communication while people are still alive and able to communicate is the answer. How do you get to that point? 
Well, let me ask one question before that, because what I have found, tell me this, both of you, when you have your checkups and people come in and say what they own or how they're titled, how often are they right? That's a great question. That's a really great question. You have to think about that. Most of my (laughs) clients confess that they are not sure and they go out and seek that information from their advisors. Um, and you know, if they are not 100% sure how their house is owned, I'll go look it up. So we do seek confirmation. But a lot of people will confess that they, you know, it's ours and they haven't paid attention to how things are titled or how beneficiaries are designated and they rely on their advisors to look it up. Yeah, I don't know how often that happens, but I, it does seem like it's polarized. Either people remember it and they know all the details and they look at it frequently or they rely on their ad- advisors to do that. Um, it, it, it seems like it's one extreme or the other. Well, I, I will tell again, we deal with disputes. They're almost always wrong. The ones, the it, ones that come to it, us. And the, but if you are talking to a planner and you actually bring the documents, you have a better chance. So let's assume they did that. And now you're talking about a business plan or an estate plan. And Rebecca pointed out that the knowledge between the lower generation and the higher generation is different. How do you talk to or advise your clients to talk among themselves about what the plan is? The vast majority of estate plans that I work on and I think most lawyers work on are are what you would expect. You know, big benefit to the spouse and things split evenly among the kids. Um, there isn't one huge asset that can't be split evenly. So that's that's most of the time. And there's not a whole lot of communication needed before the fact about what our estate plan is. Um, but when there are one one child working in the business or beach house that only one child wants because the other child lives abroad. Those are conversations that you need to encourage people to have. Many clients are not, families don't want to talk about death, of course, because it's unpleasant, but also are not interested in delivering bad news when everybody's together for Thanksgiving. And when a client really doesn't want to talk about their estate plan with their family, I encourage them to write a letter and leave it with their will, particularly if they're young and healthy and they may change their estate plan later. Um, I encourage them to write a a letter that just explains why they made the decisions that they did, that it's their greatest wish that the siblings continue to get along after death. Um, And to a point that Carly made earlier, include contact information for all the advisors that the family needs to use because oftentimes the older generation hasn't introduced the younger generation to the trusted advisor. So there isn't a relationship there. So, you know, who do, who is your real estate attorney? Who, you know, how important is the person who um, put together your life insurance plan to you? Does that person need to be consulted? And I know with my husband's business, there's a buy-sell. He has two partners. Who is the attorney who you want to negotiate on behalf of the estate with that buy-sell for his partners to buy out the estate? Um, It's important to have all that together. So it can be done in a letter as well. Family communication is something that Atlantic Trust excels at. We have had a lot of success with this over multiple generations. Uh, We do a lot of family meetings, and there are many ways to do a family meeting. I think people have this idea in their head that it's this very serious, you know, as Rebecca was saying, you know, it's a serious conversation you have at the holidays. There are so many ways to do it and to make it fun or to make it a serious business meeting if that is what the family needs. But we have tools that we use that that help promote legacy planning, not just the numbers side, but the soft side as and well. And then the family meetings are not necessarily one single family meeting. Sometimes this is something right. that takes place over over a long period of time. Yes, and it and it can it can be um it can be brief, it can be virtual, it can be a retreat, um, it can be 
certain exercises that we do, um, you know, sending the the children and grandchildren generation uh, home with, you know, look into this thing about your family business or the industry or whatnot and come back. Um, we use all kinds of tools to to help that communication, but it, it's got it's got to it's got to be a process. It's not um, a magic solution. It's not something that we can address after death of the client. So you're listening. <laughs> We're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts today, Adam Gaslowitz and Craig Frankel from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. And we're talking to Rebecca Cummings, an Atlanta lawyer, and Carly Howard, a senior wealth strategist. In terms of talking to families, do you ever discuss with your clients how they're going to distribute the personal property? Not the big wealth that the family has, but the the things, the sentimental things or the things that we uh, uh, sometimes after the fact attach value to, uh, about how to distribute that as opposed to just, most wills will say, you know, I want it divided evenly among my kids, my executor can make that decision. But from experience that those things don't end up playing out very well. Yeah, that can be the kindling that starts the fire, really. It seems like if someone has a sentimental attachment to something in the house, the family Bible, photographs, a wedding ring, um, something that I they... I can't tell you how many fights <laughs> we've had over family Bibles. Oh, yeah. That's that's the one, especially if they think they're going to find money in it. <laughs> 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 but that seems to be the, the, the spark, so to speak. But yes, uh, I, I have helped clients um, use a digital catalog. Um, we've used... Um, Polaroid photos in a flip book. Of course, we always want to consult the attorney to make sure that anything that's written on or designated meets the tangible personal property memorandum rules of that state. But there, um, there are ways that we can help people think through this and and catalog it and make sure that the uh, communication is consistent. So, so, you, so you mentioned memorandum. That's 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 not necessarily always done. Explain to our listeners what a memorandum is tangible personal property, some states allow looser standards for bequests of tangible personal property, and you can do a separate memorandum. That's not the case in Georgia. So we use memorandums, separate memorandums, but they're not legally binding if it's not in the will um, at the time the will is executed. So in my wills, in families where person making the plan feels confident that everyone gets along. I'll say you may find a memo with this will with certain property to go to certain family members. And I would like my executor to follow my wishes if the memorandum is found within 30 days of my death. And I indemnify my executor for following my wishes. And many clients use a memorandum. Many more clients never get around to writing a memorandum. <laughs> and that's a very important point. Right. right. If you don't use the memorandum, it's, it's not a particularly effective tool. True. True. It's not. And and I think a lot of the fighting that doesn't rise to the level of getting to your firm is about tangible personal property because you cannot split grandpa's gun or the family Bible. I mean, those those are the things that, that cannot be divided like an account can be divided. So I talk to my clients about if, you know, m- many will state with regard to tangible personal property that the children who survive should divide it as they may agree. So I talk about, are they likely to agree? (laughs) I mean, do your children agree on anything? 
And so if they don't agree and we have an executor who's in charge of it, is that one child? It, you know, who is that person? And, you know, if your objective here is to make sure that your descendants have a continuing relationship and that your legacy isn't a huge fight in the family, we have to talk very specifically about who is the person who's ultimately in charge of that division and will they be able to handle that division in a way that doesn't divide the family. So one more reason for having a corporate fiduciary divvy up the property as opposed to one of your three kids. Right. right. Or at least designing the system. Yeah. I mean, there are right. lots of, of standard systems that we all advise and suggest using for taking turns and, and, and how property is that. That means having a default, not just saying if the memo's not there, executor chooses, but giving guidance to the executor. When you say there's a system, you're talking about a default that says, you get to choose first, you choose next, or something like that? Yeah, like one, two, three, three, two, one, that everybody draws numbers and then you just pick. The other based, issue- Based on value, based on- Well, that's the other issue I was going to say is that oftentimes wills are silent as to if the value of tangible personal property that goes to one child is radically different than the other children, does that come out of the financial bequest? You know, does the child who got the Stein, uh, Steinway piano get less cash because the tangible personal property they got was more expensive. And how do you recommend clients deal with that in advance? Anticipate that and put it in the will, especially if you have tangible personal property of great value. Or hire a corporate fiduciary that has a procedure or best practice on that. How, how does Atlantic Trust do it? It depends on the situation. We talk to each of our clients ahead of time and then set that out ahead of time. Um, it has not been a huge issue with any of the probates we've been working on l lately because we focus so, so heavily on family communication ahead of time. Do, do you ever advise clients in advance to start giving it away before they die instead yes. of leaving it to fight about later? You know, as sure. We get, as and we get older, we it, end up it, with it, a lot of stuff we sure. don't need. It depends and of course, on the client. But how do they actually do it? Some people really do. And, Absolutely. You know, going back to the, the, the theme that there's a soft side to all of these numbers as well, there is some satisfaction giving a gift to a loved one and knowing that it's appreciated. Seeing and it used seeing or that, worn. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think I think sometimes people are, are selling themselves short by not gifting ahead of time. Yeah, I think if they can afford it, if, yeah. it's, if it's right. Well, for them. you know, money gifts people think about differently than tangible personal property. But I think clients do, um, as they get older, give tangible personal property down the line to children. Of course, there have been a lot of articles lately about how younger generations are not interested in antiques and things like that. But you might have one child who is and uh of course, jewelry and other collections are typically things that the younger generation does want. So I do see a lot of gifting of tangible personal property. In today's environment, now that we've changed the estate tax laws, and there's lots of documents that were written a while ago, whether they are a trust or whether they're a will, are you seeing tax issues come up that weren't anticipated? Yes. Tell me in kind of what context and, and kind of the follow-up is, is there a way to fix them? Yes. We see... Uh, credit shelter trust issues frequently because when the exemption amounts were lower, folks assumed that the credit shelter trust would be maxed out and then some amount of money would go into a marital trust. So you can see that the terms of the credit shelter trust are set up differently from the marital. The marital trust would be for spouse. The credit shelter trust would be for family. But now that the exemption amounts are so high, we may not have a funded marital trust, and that may not be what the client wanted. A situation would be a husband passes away, wants his wife to be well taken care of, 
during her lifetime. And then whatever's left over goes to the children. I think that's a typical trust situation. But when the credit shelter terms are not appropriate and you don't have a funded marital trust, you might have a trust where the surviving spouse and children are all equal beneficiaries of this trust. Sometimes there's language that sets out that the surviving spouse is the primary beneficiary, but if that's not there, it can be a real problem. So this highlights that if you do a checkup, one of the things you want to check up on is the funding of the trust. Yeah, and if all of that that I just said sounded like gobbledygook, it's time for you to get a checkup. (laughs) But but what's the, let's assume that you didn't have the chance for whatever reason to solve this problem. Is there anything you can do or the family can do after the fact to solve, whether it be the funding problem or whether it be the tax basis problem or whether it be that you didn't transfer it right and you got IRA rules or something like that. Is there anything that we can do as planners and as fiduciaries to fix a tax mistake? I mean, there's just, you have fewer options once somebody's died. You know, the most common problem that I see is sort of the opposite of what you just described, and that is an unnecessary credit shelter trust because all of the beneficiary designations have been changed to go to the spouse because of the change in the tax laws, and there's a very small amount going through the will, and it goes into an unnecessary credit shelter trust. And so what we're trying to do after the person has died is figure out a way to terminate the trust in accordance with his terms so that we don't have the extra unnecessary tax return every year. I just met with somebody about this yesterday and do the distribution provisions allow that to be distributed out? And we've had a lot of success with that. It happens all the time. And that's sort of the the flip side of what you're talking about. When the exemption went up, a lot of people went to outright bequests for spouse. And then we've got a $200,000 credit shelter trust and you're filing a tax return for it every year, trying to figure out how to get it out. We're kind of nearing the end of our show. So let's ask a fun question. Each of you, if you could, just we'll ask each of you, tell me kind of the best case scenario where you solved all of the problems in advance. And then let's hear the horror story, kind of where it didn't work out. (laughs) I'll start with a horror story from when I was uh, practicing law as a fiduciary litigator. We had, well, I guess the beach house example (laughs) would be Mm -hmm. one of them. But but, um, we had a four-week bench trial where pretty much everybody in the family were all lawyers. Uh, (laughs) A prescription for disaster. (laughs) Yeah, right. Father was the sole breadwinner, passed away, left assets in trust for mom, and she did not change her lifestyle at all. The terms of most trust agreements say that my spouse shall be kept living in the standard of the standard of living should be the same as what it was when I died. And that's boilerplate language. So she continued living that way and spent down a significant portion of the family assets. There were five children. One of the children was named as individual trustee. Statements were not sent out appropriately. When mom died, the other children said, where's our money? And the individual trustee, our client said, well, mom spent it. And this launched them into so much litigation. I believe that our client was trying to do the right thing for mom and uh, did not intend on spending his siblings' inheritance, but they saw it very differently. So that was incredibly expensive, incredibly expensive for this family. What could what could that trustee have done to minimize the upcoming dispute? Well, they could have hired, uh, appointed a professional co-trustee. Professional trustee can serve with the individual trustee. So you have boots on the ground. You have somebody who's in the family. And And you have somebody objective. And you have somebody objective who's a professional who can do the paperwork, make sure statements are going to the right people, 
for, for say that again statements <laughs> going to the right people statements going to the right people and that's for so many reasons um statute of limitations communications all of these things um and also i suspect that meetings between the the child who was the uh trustee and the other children along the way as opposed to uh, after mom died would have made a big difference as well absolutely you could see the family dynamics in this you could see that two of the brothers were very competitive you know somebody might have got hidden in the head with a baseball when they were a kid and now you know they're still fighting over that it it there was so much to it and i think for this family having a corporate trustee would have been great but at a bare minimum better communication would have would have been a must um, so that that's a horror story um, but we we also we have a family that we work with that um, ha- has uh, passed on a successful business or, or involved family member members in a successful business for four generations now, and they've grown their wealth, they've maintained their wealth. We work with them on an ongoing basis to make sure that every aspect of each family member's financial life is incorporated in in into the business plan. Mm-hmm. And I know that that doesn't sound like a you know very exciting you know, crazy story, but, but that's really what it's all about. Well, a, success, a success is it's a family plan that actually Four plan, generations. That, that yeah. plays out, that actually accomplishes what they set out to accomplish. Exactly. For, for, for me to look at something that our firm has worked with for that long, for four generations, that, that is huge. Yeah. Rebecca, your turn. Tell us. Uh... Well, all of the best stories, because they're the most satisfying and the saddest stories in my practice involve blended families because they have special challenges. I mean, as much as you have siblings. What is a blended family for our audience? A blended family is when you have uh, a marriage where everybody brings or both people bring children from a prior relationship or marriage to the marriage. So you have step siblings. Uh, or step parents, and they bring their own special challenges because, uh, you know, in as we've been talking about, there's distrust among siblings sometimes when a parent dies, um, if, especially if things are not exactly 50-50. It's so much worse when it's a step-sibling or a half-sibling, and communication becomes so much more important. People may not have grown up together in the same house. They may have had uh, very different value, been raised with very different values. But you know, when a parent dies and leaves everything to a second spouse, the children from the first marriage are often very, very hurt, and they're often very scared that their whole legacy, all of the things that came from their grandparents and their parents' personal items are now with a step-parent who has no legal obligation to leave them anything. They may not have a close relationship. And so the worst stories are when uh, families dissolve into fighting because of lack of communication. And the best stories are when step-parents and step-children and step-siblings have open communication and everyone knows what to expect. Um, and that's when it's the most gratifying. And a lot of times that does take an independent or professional or corporate fiduciary um, because there's just not a trust level in a blended family that there often is in a family that's not blended. So the, the lesson we're hearing today throughout the whole show is communication early and communication often. It's kind of like voting. Vote early, vote often. And accurate. And accurate. <laughs> so so uh, trust but verify. Correct. Our, our, our last voting cl- clue. As we are wrapping up our show, I want to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. For more information about Gaswitch Frankel, please go to our website at gaswitchfrankel.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute 
and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Carly, if our listeners want to talk to you or get in touch with you, what do they do? AtlanticTrust.com. Atlantic Trust also has a great media presence on LinkedIn, Twitter, etc. I hope to hear from you soon. And Rebecca, how do our guests, our listeners, get in touch with you? All my contact information is on my website, GodBeCummingsLaw.com. That's G-O-D-B-E-Y-C-U-M-M-I-N-G-S Law.com. So thank you, uh, Rebecca Cummings, for being with us today. Thank you, Carly Howard, who is a senior wealth strategist with Atlantic Trust Private Wealth Management, for being with us. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. 